Crossings was recorded on the unceded sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. EWF pays our respects to Wurundjeri elders past and present and to the elders of all lands that this podcast reaches. You're listening to Crossings, the EWF in Conversation podcast. My name is Jess and I'm the program coordinator of the Emerging Writers Festival. Today I'm excited to share a conversation between Peggy Frew and Mark Hewitt. Peggy's work has won numerous awards, including being shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Literary Prize. She is a member of the critically acclaimed and award-winning Melbourne band Art of Fighting. Wildflowers is her fourth novel. Mark Hewitt is a writer from Melbourne. His debut fiction, the short story Door Knocker, was published in Empty Mind Plaza in 2022. Westy is his first novel. Peggy and Mark met in September for this conversation, having been acquainted in the past. They spoke about the ethics of writing fiction, their individual writing processes, making a living as an artist, and more broadly, the public and private identity of being a writer. There's great wisdom and food for thought in this conversation. I hope you enjoy listening. I come um, from a family of burpers, so it's, I'm, I'm traumatised by other people's burps. <laughs> yeah, it's anyway. hard. Um, I don't mind anyone doing it as long as it's not my one of my siblings, that <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah, then it annoys me. Yeah, right. I, yeah. I could probably say the same thing and one of my parents as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, what were you saying though? New new projects or is yeah. it stuff you can't talk about? No, I mean I can talk about it in general. I think I'm going to record a solo album, which feels very ridiculous. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, so I've kind of booked in to do that in November. I just all these songs kind of jumped out of me in January, and I was like, oh, what am I going to do with these? Yeah, so that's very different right. from, from writing. So, and you haven't recorded solo before? No. Okay. No, never. Oh, there's like some old four-track demos from like 25 years ago. Wow. <laughs> yeah, probably the, um, when I first discovered Art of Fighting. Yeah, maybe. When I was 14 or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wild. Yeah, so that's, um, I mean, I've just booked in the time um, and had barely even a chat with... Um, the guy that's going to record it. So who, who even knows what will come of that. But the other thing I'm doing is I went back to uni and I've been studying poetry writing cool. and this semester I'm doing like a life writing class. So writing biographical or autobiographical, non-fiction and writing for the screen. So cool. it's just, I mean, I think all of it is my way of trying to find my way back to novel writing. So basically I finished Wildflowers during the lockdowns. It was like I just shut my eyes and shoved it away from me once it was done. Like I didn't want anything more to do with it ever again. And then there was no next novel waiting because usually there's one waiting, well usually three times out of four published books there's been one waiting in the back of my mind. And you're dying to get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that just didn't happen, so I just freaked out and like somehow talked my way into doing a master's degree, even though I don't have an undergraduate degree. <laughs> um, yeah, so just I just thought if I studied different kinds of writing, it might just like ignite that spark yeah. for writing again. And it kind of has worked. Yeah, it's been awesome. cool. Are yeah. you watching more movies? 
oh. like in conjunction with thinking more about writing for the screen? I, or? I should be. Well, actually what I should be doing is just reading lots of screenplays. Mm. But I'm, I really struggle to get reading done. Just have a lot of commitments with my family. Life's too crazy. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's what I'm doing now and with a view to one day coming back to novels because I do love novels. I just feel like there's something that really meets my needs both as a reader and a writer in that form. Mm. Where are you at with your novel? I'm doing a heavy rewrite of the first draft, but only the first half of it. So I'm in the second draft, I'm probably 15, 20,000 words in. Mm -hmm. But the first half of it really needs to be pretty much rewritten. And I'm using the first draft as a reference and stealing stuff from it. But it's all new scenes, same characters, but all, it's all different. Ah, so it's um, not like you're opening, like you're saving a new file and then going in and rearranging what you've got. You're actually starting fresh yeah. in a new file. But when wow. it gets to the second half of this draft, I won't have to do that, hopefully. I think the second half is in much better shape. And yeah, a bit like what you were saying earlier about writing a lot of wildflowers, was it, mm. during COVID? Yeah. I found that I, I, was, I was just cranking out pages during COVID, not because of COVID, but because of other life reasons mm. where I had a lot of time. I was just working on it a lot more frequently and I was able to keep the kettle boiling and yeah, really yeah. like it was just occupying my head a lot and there were far fewer distractions than mm. when I'd written the first half, nine, like over four years or something, just not frequent enough. And it was confused and rambling and, you know, it just needed a big clean up. And I did it with pen and paper, the first oh, wow. draft, so which also gave it something, but also removed cohesion or something. I don't mm -hmm. know. I haven't really figured out whether I want to do that again. But Well, also um, it's a first draft, right? And usually a first draft doesn't make it. Right, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. It's just getting started, really. Yeah, totally. And I didn't even figure out what the thing was about mm -hmm. until a, a good way, probably two-thirds into the first draft anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of just at that point where I need to slog it out and I think this will be the worst one and then, then I'll actually have the words on the page that can be cleaned up after this pass and then it'll be two or three, maybe one or two more. Yeah. Then, yeah. So yeah, hopefully like I've been saying this for years but maybe six months. Wow. I'll have a novel hopefully to yeah. like show somebody. That is very exciting. Do you yeah. want to, I feel I want to ask you more questions about the novel in progress, but do you want to talk a bit about showing people and once you've finished whichever draft number it is and you, you feel like you're ready to show it to someone? Like to friends for feedback and... Is that, is that, that your plan? Is that where you would go next? Uh, yeah, maybe. I'm always... I never have like an organic impulse to do that, but whenever I have done that, like if a friend is like, just show me some pages, like you don't have to be precious about it or whatever, and I'll do it and I'm like really glad that I did it because it's usually a close friend... It's, it's probably been less than five people who, who've read any of it at all, mm -hmm. but each time it's been someone who is a big reader and or close to me as a friend and can just be ruthless in, in the right ways and pump up my tires in the right ways yeah, as well. Yeah. So it's always worthwhile, but I don't have any actual plans yeah. to do it. I think, to be really honest, I romanticize too much about being out in the cold and isolated and just slogging it out at, at war with my own mind, Yeah, which is not very smart or healthy, but that's just what my impulse is, you know. I'm like, well, it's up to me. No feedback can finish or not finish the novel. Like, yeah. it'll, it'll encourage me, but I think at this point I'm so desperate to get it done that it's not going to make me work any harder. 
getting some good feedback. Mm. It has in the past, but I think now it's just like it's it's full steam ahead kind yeah. of thing. And you know, my my work ethic is pretty good at the moment. So, how do you know when you're ready to show it to someone? In the past, has it just been that people have hassled you to the point where you just give in and show them a bit, or do you ever go, oh, I just because for me, I always reach a point where I'm like, I've gone as far as I can with this. I can't get any further on my own, but I know right. that it's not publishable. It's not ready. So I need to show it to someone and I need fresh eyes on it and I need someone to go, well, I don't know why that. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me that that character would, you know, do whatever they do or just ask. It's usually the questions that I find really helpful. like From them. From them. Yeah. When, so they'll, they'll say, I've got a, an agent, literary agent. Her name's Jane Novak and she's one of the most straight-talking people I've ever met and I remember showing her first draft of Islands, which is my third novel. She came to Melbourne and we met up and she's like, I just didn't care about any of these characters. (laughs) 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 You know, and I'm like, oh, my baby. (laughs) So I had to like... Any of them? None of them. I mean, it's a pretty small cast of characters. It's a family, so family with two parents and two daughters. I mean, there are peripheral characters, but that was what she meant, the four main characters. That was pretty much her main feedback. And then she also said, and I don't understand why you've decided to make this a polyphonic work, you know, like multiple voices. Right. She's like, I I can't see that there's any reason to do that. So I had to just crawl into my hole and lick my wounds for about like quite a long time, like four weeks. And actually I reckon I've done this with everything I've written is I get feedback and I I feel like I'm just a very sooky person. Like I just get really hurt very easily. And, you know, you you put your heart and soul into something and then someone goes, I just didn't even care about the characters. But once I've been able to like wait for the hurt to subside, then what I always find myself asking myself is, okay, I set out to do something with this piece of writing and I'm pretty clear on what that is. And she's not getting it. She's not getting what I tried to do. It's not working on her. So why isn't it working? So for instance, with the whole question about the multiple voices, like it's a very fragmented narrative that's got like, well, I don't even know how many, maybe 10 different points of view. I had to ask myself, why? Why did I choose this? Was it just because I was sick of writing a novel that's just from one character's point of view? Was it just to entertain myself? And I ended up figuring out, well, what? why I did it was that I was trying to write a book about how within the one family, every family member sees the same event differently. Right. So it's not one story. Families are made up of multiple stories. And then I was like, okay, so that was why I did it. So why isn't it working? And then I think at the stage I showed it to her, it maybe only had four or five different points of view. So I was like, I'm just going to shatter the crap out of it and make it even more the thing that I was trying to do. What did that look like? It was actually really fun. Like that was my funnest novel because I would, I think it was at a good, really good time in my life in that my kids weren't really little, so they were all at school. I had a lot of time and I was just really tuning into my own subconscious a lot. So I would kind of finish writing one section and then I would just sort of sit down the next day and be like, what's there, what's floating up out of the murk? And then a voice would would appear and I would start writing in that voice and then I would figure out who the character was and what their relationship was to the other characters. And 
So it was just a very kind of free process. Yeah, and anyway, eventually I went back and Jane was like, oh, now I totally get it. I get what you're doing. Okay, right. I understand why you're doing that. So sometimes it's not like you hear the feedback and go, oh, my God, it's not working for them, therefore I should stop using this approach and I should write a completely different book. Sometimes it's like, well, maybe I need to do this approach more or maybe I need to refine it in these certain ways. Like redrafting to use your language, to make the thing even more yeah. what it is supposed yeah. to be. Yeah. It already is that, but yeah. it's you just have to crystallise it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's encouraging though because I think there's a lot of uncertainty I've got coming up with mm. finishing a novel. I've never done it before. I don't really know what I'm doing. I mean, I never know what I'm doing either. Well, you feel like you don't, right? I'm a lot better of a writer now that I, than I was when I started, but... One of the things I'm kind of nervous about is, and I'm preparing myself for, is to give it to somebody like an editor or agent or publisher or whatever, and for them to go, oh yeah, the story is the story, but this is the wrong vehicle for it. You have to tell the whole thing in the past tense, Mm. which the second half is like that, but the first half is this really like clipped present tense. Mm. Yeah, the the risk is making it this like American Psycho ripoff where it's just this really obsessive, mechanical, present tense situation, which I think is why I have to rewrite it. And for eight for weeks at the Wheeler Center recently, like I spent the first two weeks of that fellowship I did there just sitting there thinking about like, do I have to rewrite this whole first half in the third person, which is a letter to that the main character writes to his psychologist like in a sort of journal form, looking back on everything that's happened. Is that, sorry, is that the second half? That's the second second half, half, yeah. yeah. Um, And I just, I can't help but think that the whole thing needs to be told like Mm. that. And that could be the case, Mm. um, which will make the next two months of writing not a waste of time, but... Uh, It's never a waste of time. Of course, yeah. I guess that's the only attitude you can take, right? Like you can't, you're always getting better. Yeah. Even working on the stuff that's going to end up in the bin. Yeah, totally. Yeah. For every one page that gets published, I reckon I'd probably write another four that mm. just go in the bin. I'm a very inefficient worker. I don't have like a, a plan or any idea of what's going to happen even vaguely in the next, you know, at the end of the book or even in the next chapter or whatever. Right. So, yeah, but you just have to accept that that's your process, I think. Mm. Well, I do anyway. So you can't see any like, even any vague shape of something happening in the plot, like uh, 20,000 words in the distance? Not really. And I'm also really, I never write in a linear way. So right. I kind of write scenes and then I, I might think, oh, okay, this might be somewhere near the beginning. And then as it gradually takes shape, yeah, it's like I'll, in the final three weeks of work, I might be working on something that happens only a quarter of the way through. So okay, it's not yeah. like I start at the beginning and work my way through to the end. Okay, right. Yeah. That's, um, that's kind of comforting to hear too because uh, I've got a bit of a chaotic style. But I, I was thinking about Wildflowers having just finished reading it yesterday and it is cool the way it, it's not a linear story mm-hmm. as well. It goes back into like the life of Amber and, you know, being this like child precocious mm-hmm. actor and stuff. And it is a really cool way to tell a story. Because that's kind of how memory works. You're going totally. back and you're going forward and yeah. you're, you're worrying about the future. You're stressing about what you yeah, said in yeah. the past. It's actually a much more natural way to tell a story in a way. Yeah, and it's definitely what I'm really interested in is memory 
I think it's probably my main interest as well as family relationships as a writer. Interest slash obsession. Family as a source of fictional drama, do you mean? Or family per se? I think there are things that I want to figure out about people that exist in my life and, and about myself. I think in fiction I'm setting up a kind of scenario where I can try and understand better things that actually are to do with my own life. So in a lot of ways I don't have a very big imagination. Like the stuff that that I imagine is often really grounded in or rooted in real stuff that's happened. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about that in, with your writing? Um, totally fine a, if you don't, but about a bit, like, I'm a bit the same drawing. as you. It's, it's yeah. a tough one to talk about because... I think what will be the difference between me becoming a, a novelist long term and really doing it or not will be whether I can stand to be this person who low-key sells people out like family mm. members, mm. which I think to write good fiction, I fear that to write good fiction you have to do that on some level or at least to write the kind of fiction that I like to read, which is mostly like really rooted in real stuff like families the psychology between close friends, family mm. members. Every good book or, or movie that I've seen, or maybe not movie, but a lot of fiction I like is really, like I read a few weeks ago, um, The Man Who Loved Children. Have you read that? No, got a copy of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you have to. It's, yeah. it's wild. Yeah, and it's just like the most dramatic family drama I could think of. Mm. It, is, it is just a wild story, mm. and especially for its time, I think. Um, who wrote that? Christina Stead. Christina Stead yeah, yeah, she's actually Australian. There's mm. a crazy story behind it because I didn't know this. I just remember Olga Lorenzo at RMIT like mm. raving about this book. Mm. Finally picked it up like years later. And in the introduction, it talks about how Christina Stead, so she's from Sydney and grew up in this like big house in Botany Bay with like a million siblings. And the story is really heavily based on that, um, especially her father. And it's really scathing, really scathing depiction of her family. But the whole thing's been transposed to what to like a suburb of Washington DC. Oh wow! At the publisher's request. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, it was written in the '30s, and they just said, "Oh, this isn't going to sell in the states, so you have to there. just forget about it being an Australian wow. setting." An unfortunate thing to read before you start reading the book. I wish I hadn't known that because mm. it's still one of the best books I've ever read. But every page, you're just like interrogating every piece of slang, knowing that instead of like mate or like some Australianism, they've they've had to Americanize it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. How interesting! I'm definitely going to move that up the, up in the pile. <laughs> yeah, but um, oh, I forget what I was saying with that. Uh, we yeah, families. Talking, yeah, families, um, and about like drawing on real life. When you you, I think you use the phrase. Sell out. Yeah, which yeah. is a, my stupid, blunt way of saying use real people mm. who you, you love or hate mm. or, or both. Mm. Um, yeah, to make this story and make mo- even make money off this story mm. that you're just putting out into the world. Um, mm. And all these people you don't know who aren't a part of your clan, like your sacred clan and this sacred family you have, mm. you're just exploiting that to use for um, storytelling. Yeah. I don't think of it as bleakly as that. I, I do think I'm definitely nervous about that. There's come a time where I'm going to tackle something that's something I have to process mm. about my upbringing or about family or just something that's close enough to the bone that you're going to make some people feel a bit funny. 
Mm. I don't know. I, I, I'm yet to find out how essential these things are to like the writing of good novels, but I suspect fairly essential. I don't know. I think it's really good that you're not making a call. It, it sounds to me like you're really aware of all of this kind of the ethics basically of writing stuff that's based on real life, but you're not letting it at the moment. You're just focusing on the work mm. and going where the work needs to go. And I think that's so important because you can even expand that out from like family members who might not be happy about it to just audience in general. I think thinking about the audience early in the writing process or even while you still need to be really uninhibited in what you do with your characters and yeah. where you go in the writing. You can't be second guessing it. Totally. It just, it's a way to write really shit writing. Like mm. I, to, to use a musical analogy because we're, both musicians, it's like, well, this is a long time ago now, but when Art of Fighting, we were still, you know, kind of putting out albums and touring a lot, so more than 20 years ago. At that stage, I don't know if this still applies, but if you were a band in Australia and you could get a Triple J Presents tour, you got funding to go and play in regional areas. Okay, yeah. And so we had this obsession with trying to get a song played on Triple J because back then Triple J played a lot more kind of like indie rock. So we would have these just farcical rehearsals. So basically, you know, Art of Fighting was kind of shoegazy, indie, sad music. And it wasn't unusual for us to write like an eight minute song or even longer. And Triple J very, very rarely played anything over about maybe four minutes at the most. So we would try and write a song that was under four minutes so that we would get played on Triple J and then we could get a Triple J Presents tour. Right. And they were just always the worst songs. Like they were just total dogs of songs. Like we just could not make them work. Dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was a dog of a It was a dog of a song. Yeah, so like at some point we just went, this is stupid. We've moved so far away from what we saw as the magic of what made our band special to us that it's like we're trying to start a new project here. And I think it's really similar for thinking about writing and the audience, both in terms of, yeah, like the general public, the reading public, publishers, agents, and your family, you know. I mean, you do have to think about that stuff at some point, but not now, not while you're still like elbow deep in the actual work of of writing and generating new stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, I can give you a bit of advice if you want about the family stuff because, I mean... Maybe off air. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't mind... I, I don't mind... I don't mind talking about this with my, about my work, but oh, some of it is so heavily drawn. Like Islands was pretty much the story of my family, but just with this added major drama of a family member going missing, which thank God didn't happen in my right. family. I was, I didn't think about it until I was getting ready to send it to my agent. And then I, and then I was like, okay, I've got to face this. I've got to deal with how people might feel about this. Right. And there was one person in particular that I thought would be hurt by it, and I gave them a draft, a copy of the of the draft before you submitted before it. I sent it to the agent. But I didn't say that they had any power of veto because it was it was fiction. You know, like the character didn't have the same name. They didn't look like my family member. They didn't have the same job. Yeah. But what was drawn from real life was how the relationships worked. You know, and how the character that's based on me felt about that character. And that stuff was really, would have been really confronting for that person to read. Yeah. But I didn't say that they could put the kibosh on it. I just want you to read this before I send it to my agent. 
yeah. I'm still going to send it to my agent. Okay. Yeah. And it was actually really amazing. Like that person came back to me and said, I can see where the reality is in this writing and I'm, and, and I just want to say that I'm really sorry. I, I had no idea that your experience was this. Okay, right. Um, so that was actually worked out really well. Wow. But it doesn't always work out well. Like no. one of my favourite ever authors is Gillian Mears, who is an Australian author. Okay. I remember reading an article about her and the journalist had interviewed one of her sisters and the sister described Gillian as a spider on the neck of the family. <laughs> wow. So I think she, she like burned bridges, you know, with her writing. Wow. It was, That's a memorable metaphor. It really is. I was watching a Martin Amos interview on YouTube a few weeks ago because I read one of his books and really loved it. And he quoted Philip Roth who said that as soon as a writer is born into a family, that's the end of that family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was being facetious. Uh, but yeah, like, in some cases it's probably yeah. true to some degree. Except that families never end, do they? Even when people die, you know, nothing ends. They still have a presence. We all still have presence in each other's lives. Mm. I just wanted to get back to some of that ethical stuff. What else was I going to say? Oh, the other thing is just never underestimate the power of fictionalising stuff like I remember, oh, this was probably like one of the first short stories I wrote and for some reason I showed it to my mum. I was a teenager. Isn't that the first thing they tell you not to do? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Don't show you your... I think, I think I had to like use her work computer to print it or something. So I, I don't know, she, she found out about it. So I have a cousin called Alice. I'd written a character and, and I think I'd called them Elise and they had blonde hair and my cousin Alice ha has blonde hair and, and had blonde hair back then. But actually, they weren't based on my cousin at all. Like, they were a completely fictitious character. My mum read it and went, oh, well, that must be Alice. Right. Whereas I have written characters that are just very thinly veiled versions of real people, but because I gave them different colour hair and a different name and a different job and stuff, that person has read the whole manuscript and not recognised themselves. Right. So I think people... It can go both ways. It, it can. Yeah. And, I mean, Helen Garner published The Spare Room, an extraordinary book, by the way, <laughs> if you haven't read it. And in it, the main character is called Helen and she is a writer and she lives in Kensington. All these things are true of Helen Garner. Helen Garner in real life had a friend die and cared for that friend. And in the book, the Helen character cares for this friend who's dying. But on the cover of that book, it says The Spare Room, a novel. Like she says it's fiction, so it is. You know what I mean? Right. Like you, you get to say. Yeah, it's interesting. Fact and fiction, it's. I, I had a real hard time because um, I was reading a lot of autobiographical fiction, including probably Mon Monkey Grip mm. in my 20s. I read it a couple of times, I think, and found it hard to, when I first started messing around with fiction, maybe like 10 years ago, I found it hard to synthesize things into a more made up world. Mm. I found it hard to break out of this like auto fiction kind mm. of realness and draw on memory only. And real, real things only. It was basically just like I was just keeping this journal, and I was at the point where I thought I could never actually step outside of that and just sort of lurch that whole thing into like this made-up world, which I was slowly trying to do. And over it, it took years to actually get to the point where I was able to like blend mm. seamlessly real stuff and fake stuff. So I think that was a big breakthrough. But now, now it's just the anxiety about how real does it have to be. And how real can I get away with? It's 
I guess every book is different though. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm just finding out as I, as I go along and yeah. always reserving the right to just throw the whole thing in the bin if I want. Oh, I'm just, I'm kind of still thinking about what you said about um, taking your journal and painstakingly, you know, through what just sounded like this really extended laborious process, progressing to the point where you could kind of call it fiction and how hard that was and just everyone's mind is so different, isn't it? Because it, I've always had a problem with fantasy and reality being too jumbled up in my mind and in my memories. And right. I'll kind of like imagine that something happened and then eventually I just can't tell the difference between that and my real memories. And also things that I've read or seen or listened to, they all go in there as well. Anyway, maybe it's like my early onset of some kind of <laughs> neurological Grim. issue. I never feel certain about any memory. I'm always like, well, that's kind of what I think happened, but yeah. I'm not sure. And Which is beautiful really, isn't it? Because that's like fiction. It's like, well, this is just an, it appro makes, an approximation. It makes fiction writing really easy and my mind does a lot of lateral jumps that I kind of, I know that that's happening, but I can't, I don't understand why. So, so for instance, in Islands, my third novel, I drew on this story, which was that my grandfather was driving, my grandparents lived in the Latrobe Valley, and um, he was driving at night, don't know where he was going, but on country roads, and someone had tied a horse up by the side of the road but they'd made the rope too long or something a knot had come undone or something and basically he this black horse in the middle of the night was in the middle of the road and he hit it and he didn't know what to do someone else came along and they were like I'll go and get the cops so they drove off because it's long before mobile phones obviously this would have been in the 1960s cops eventually appeared from the local small town and this poor horse was had to be shot shot my grandpa heard one of the cops say to the other one, how do you shoot a horse? And I never heard that story from my grandpa. I heard it from my father. And then when I went to write Islands, I was writing about the father character in the book. And at some point I realised he was driving in the dark on this country road and then this horse appears. And so it was like I'd taken this story that I'd never actually heard from the mouth of the guy who experienced it and then I'd transposed it onto that guy's son <laughs> who's right. my dad. But then the character that I was writing about was a fictionalised version of my dad. Right. Yeah, and just but, stuff like that. Which is a big jump but this, the thing got said and it's, yeah. a, it's this thing that can be explained by all the archetypes of psychology and people interacting over the human yeah. history, isn't it? So it was kind of there to just like... Because it's a story and that's right. what stories are. And it was there to put somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's the workaround that you can, you just have to do it yeah. well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. a pretty amazing quote though. Like, yeah. And I never really think about this stuff. Like I've got, I'm quite superstitious about my process. So I'm kind of like, I don't, I don't try and go into it and explain it and pathologize it and stuff. I just kind of leave it alone. Yeah. So it's kind of weird to talk about it, but mm. and it's so funny. No one in my family has ever said anything like, well, that didn't happen to me. That happened to my dad or whatever. They just don't say anything. <laughs> really? That mustn't be necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, I, look, something that really helps in my, this is very specific to my circumstances, is that in my family, work is very highly valued. People in my family get really into their jobs and will talk about their work a lot, like too much sometimes. So it's, it's like my fears that I have about hurting people, 
I don't have to worry as much as I do because all the people in my family are like, your writing is your work and we will always respect that and privilege it. Okay, like that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So it's actually really good because I think, I think a lot of creative people have that experience of like trying to have this creative life and it's not valued by their family at all. You know, like their family's like, why don't you get a real job? How much money yeah. are you making? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so I yeah, think I've just the, been lucky in that. Right. I'm sure conversely though, it must have been hard to go against the grain of that, like if you're from a practical utilitarian family that's really work-oriented, which I am too, mm. it takes an extra notch of courage, doesn't it, to like say, oh, I'm going to take fiction seriously. Mm. Like you feel like such a wanker. In, <laughs> in, in certain contexts saying that, they're like, well, that's not going to pay much, is it? Like yeah. how many, how, you know, that it, my family's way too... Uh, sweet to say that, but you can feel yeah. you're mostly saying it to yourself because it's like self-doubt and stuff. But I did want to ask you about even in just broad strokes, like what was your experience like when you were maybe more at my level where, you, where you're working on your first book, for instance, was that stuff much of a barrier to you actually getting runs on the board? Like, yeah. was it, did you feel like you were fighting against like this certain utilitarian current in society that didn't really value what you were trying to do mm. and that maybe you needed more of a, um, a peer group or you needed to just like forget about your family f- for a while or forget about all your friends with good jobs and just see the people who were like trying to make music and art yeah. and stuff. Was it like that for you at all? Or? I think because I had the first thing, that my, the first kind of career that I had was, was music and, you know, if your definition of a career is something that pays, then it wasn't a career but it was something that I wanted to do and I worked kind of casual, shitty jobs to support myself while I did that. And I didn't have many, like, this was a bit of a golden time, you know, through the, when was it, like late 90s, early 2000s, when you could work a couple of shifts a week in some casual job and and manage to cover your rent and have all the freedom of casual work and tour and do all that stuff. It was really great. It wasn't like Gough Whitlam times, but it was a lot better than now, wasn't (laughs) it? Yeah, yeah, it was somewhere in between, yeah. And it doesn't really make much sense, but they were prepared to accept that that was what I'd chosen to do. And they were always very positive about the successes that the band had. And I think it does help to have success, you know, like... Like Art of Fighting won an aria and, and, and that meant that my parents could say to their friends, Peggy's bands won an aria. Like it was runs on the board, like you say, it was legitimate. Whereas yeah. it's not like they would go around saying, oh, Peggy's bands recorded an album and they're really happy with it and the songs are really good. That's not their measure of success, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, fair enough. It's a world they don't know anything about. Also, to give them their due, they, they would come to shows. They came to all our shows when we were starting out playing really small venues and they would like say, oh, I really like that song, you know, and so they really did engage with it, very encouraging people. Mm. But with writing, basically what I did was I, I was feeling kind of burnt out from touring and by this stage I was kind of in my mid-20s and I was just tired. I was tired of standing up all night. <laughs> <laughs> Not all night but for like a couple of hours and lugging gear around all that yeah, stuff. I was feeling a bit, I was, I was like ageing out. <laughs> And um, some people that I knew were doing that professional writing and editing course that Olga Lorenzo taught in. So did you do that course too? Yeah, 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 in like 2010, 11, yeah. yeah. Um, That was just, I finished in 2008. Right, she used to mention you actually occasionally in... um in classes. Oh, that's yeah. so lovely. She was a, like a life-changing teacher. She was amazing. For me too. Yeah. Actual, actual the, yeah. real, the real thing. Yeah. I had two in my whole life and she was one of them. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
So I basically decided that I would try and get into that course and then I would apply for like Oz study, which I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but you know, I could cover my rent and whatever. And my, I think I think because it was a course and my parents value education, they were like, oh, that's good. And also because it's got that kind of like vocational angle on it where it's like you get training so you can work as an editor or you could work as a publishing assistant in a publishing house, whatever. Yeah. You know, you can get a paying job out of doing this course. It wasn't just a purely creative course. I think my parents were like, well, that's good, you know, blah, blah, blah. And in fact, I did get a job in a publishing house for a very short time. And when I started working on a novel, my first novel, I had actually been working on it for, before I started that professional writing and editing course. Uh, but I, I refined it and got quite a lot more done on it during the course. Yeah. It wasn't like I had to just out of the blue come to my parents and say, oh, I've decided to become a writer. I was just like, I'm doing this course. Yeah. And then I um, won a prize for, for a short story and it was the year that I finished the course. It was just this crazy three days where I graduated from RMIT, had a baby, won oh, wow. the prize and I had an email, an email from a publisher the next day. Like winning prizes really makes people notice your work. Right. And I think because I'd won a prize and then I had interest from publishers, I didn't have to like say, hey, I'm going to put myself out there and become a writer. I was just like, look, it's already happening. The prize was, I don't think it exists anymore, but it was a short story competition run by The Age newspaper. And so oh, I was yeah. published I in the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then, you know, I had an agent and I was, I had my first novel published, I think the next year. So... So you you got the agent off the back of the short story, okay? Yeah. Cool. Is yeah. it the same agent as now? No, no, no. it was a different. I, I changed. I've had two, so that, yeah. that was the first one. Yeah, and that agent suggested that I enter my manuscript that I was working on for the Victorian Premiers Awards Prize for a non-published manuscript, and that and I won that prize. Yeah. So I didn't I didn't have to justify it because it all just started happening before I'd even kind of outed myself to my family as taking writing seriously. Outed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't even remember what your question was now. Oh, yeah, it was just about taking that plunge of saying, hey, family, I've decided to be a writer. So have you done that? No, not really. Like my parents and my brothers know that I'm into it and taking it seriously. Yeah. And I probably have told them that over the dinner table and stuff. Like, you know, I just want to get this book finished and, you know, I'm not too worried about how I pay the rent otherwise. Um but yeah, definitely if you have a couple of like public related wins, they're like, oh, that's cool. Like, yeah. and yeah, it's just, it's same same in music. Like ironically, the, the musical projects I've been involved with that have been the most popular and have been the most impressive to like your friends and family are the ones I've valued the least. Yeah, that's so funny, <laughs> for, isn't it? For whatever reason. I'm wondering how this kind of cynicism or is going to look like in a different industry like the book world. Because I learned in music that for me, as soon as a musical project becomes more industry centric, you know, managers, press releases, the more fun gets sucked out of it for me at its best when it's on this DIY level where you've got control over everything and it's like there's this community spirit. And, and in a city like Melbourne, like you can do that for the rest of your life because yeah. it's such a good, you know, there's so many places to play and there's so many people just making all kinds of obscure stuff. I, I think. I think it'll be interesting to see how much I can stomach jumping through the hoops. A friend of a friend wrote a book that came out in Australia like recently and there was a squabble over the, the cover with a pretty big publisher 
And I thought, oh, I look forward to that squabble, you know, because <laughs> I don't want the cover to look like trash. Mm. How have you gone with that stuff? Have you ever had to, again, it might Push be, it might, yeah, it might be a bit tricky to talk about yeah. know, too behind the scenes, but um, yeah, has there been any stuff where you're like, oh, I really got to defend like my, my thing here mm. because the industry is trying to dilute it or turn it into this other thing or, or something? I think well, I was going to say I've been lucky with that stuff, but actually I'm not sure how much it is luck because I think, you know, so so just going back to that story of my kind of like beginnings in, in, in writing and publishing, well, not writing because I was already writing, but publishing industry, I had a, more than one option there. Like people, more than one publisher showed an interest because of the prize. Sure, yeah. And so I got to have the experience of meeting with different people, different people in the industry talking about the same project and it was very different the way they would talk about it, right? So, um, you know, some were much more commercial, some were like, yeah, it's, it's right, we'll just publish it as it is and others were like, mm, no, you know, I think this does need some work and here's where I think it would need work, you know. And so I basically got to kind of like see that who you bring in to work on your precious novel has a really big effect. Okay. Yeah. And editorially, and the agent must must matter too. Yeah, right? personality and yeah, are they on the same page? Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah, I mean, I love having an agent because I love that buffer. So if if someone asks me to do something and I don't want to do it, I don't have to say no. My agent can say no. Yeah. With Wildflowers, my fourth novel, there was a problem with the cover. Yeah. This is the, this is the stuff I need to hear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so when you get a publisher and you sign a contract and everything, there's the, there's the publishing house, but then there's the person who's in the role of publisher. And within one publishing house, there might be more than one of those people. So they have these big meetings where the publisher or publishers have to try and convince the sales and marketing people that, you know, this book, Mark's novel, is worth publishing. And so they have to try and say, you know, I expect it'll sell X many copies and we'll market it this way, it'll go in for this audience. And and then they might get it over the line, but then all of those people also have a say in what happens from that point on. So Jane, the publisher, was, it's not really her job to choose a cover, that's marketing. So she was like, great, we're going to publish this book of Peggy's, blah, blah, blah. And then the designer come up, comes up with a cover and through Jane sends it to me and I'm like, oh, no. You know, it, it honestly was... It just wasn't right for the book. And the really good thing about having an agent in that situation is that there's someone who will negotiate on your behalf. Um, you don't have to seem ungrateful or whatever or yeah. difficult because they're really good at negotiating and they know the right language to use. And they yeah. just have really good ideas. So I was like, oh, my God, Jane, Agent Jane, I'm so sorry, but I can't, I, this book cannot be published with this cover. It's just not the right cover for the book. Yeah. And I can see what's going on here. Jane, the publisher, gets the book and gets the market for it, but it's it's too many degrees of separation and the marketing people have got this idea. They want to, they, they want to make it look like a far more commercial novel than mm. it is. And how many of these marketing people have read it? The actual oh, manuscript they haven't, either. they haven't read None it. None of them, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So Jane, the agent, said, writes back to me and says, I'm just going to have a chat with with Alan and Unwin, and see what the process was. And I wonder whether there were any other ideas that the designers came up with. Because what will happen is in those meetings, the designer will go, okay, so for Peggy's book, I've got, you know, cover idea A, cover idea B, cover idea C, and they'll just have vague elements, like maybe one's really light or one's really dark or one's like 
got figures in it and the other one's a tree or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, the, and during the meeting, they'll decide which one to go with. So okay. I'm not involved in that at all. And then they send it to me. They're like, okay. here's the cover. Okay. So Jane, my agent, went back to them and said, could we have a look at some of the early ideas from the designer and got sent through. And fortunately, one of them was like, that is exactly the cover I want for this And that was, that's the cover. So then Jane, the agent, went back to Jane, the publisher, and said, can we go with, you know, a refined version of this early idea? Jane then goes on to the marketing people, talks them into it, it all works out. And it really is just a reflection of how a system causes disconnects. Yeah, the change just gets so noisy when there's so many different people involved, which yeah. I think is why when there's too many people involved, like I was saying earlier, like it, I've always struggled working any job that's like this big business and all these people you have to email to get permission to like up, update the website mm. or whatever, you know, it's probably just something to do with me more than anything else. But um, I feel like you and I are quite similar in our levels of tolerance. Hatred of tolerance. <laughs> No, but also just like negotiating with, yeah, as you call it, a chain. I find it really hard. I find it really hard to assert myself actually and have faith in my work and having an agent there, it's just such a lifesaver. Yeah. Having someone to do that work for you. Yeah, I I doubt I'll I'll go it alone. No, and it's a bit like also why should that be our job as writers and, and to add to that, why should it also be our job to like have an amazing Instagram account and be a really great public speaker and look good in photos and all the stuff that just now seems to be the job. And it makes me think of this, someone told me once that Prince's record label approached him at some point and they were like, hey, you know, you didn't sell that many copies of your last record, so what are we going to do about that? And Prince was like... Get on the gram. No. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Prince was like, it's my job to write and record the songs. You guys It's not my job to sell it. It's your job. Yeah, I always think of that. And now it's just all on the artist, right? Yeah. It's like, well, where's your Instagram account? <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's good to know that you don't. I don't do. There's that a lot stuff. of stuff you don't do, and you've been able to do what you do. And yeah, I mean, maybe I would have sold more books if I had an Instagram account. In fact, it, it, surely I probably would have. But but it wouldn't have been worth it. It wouldn't have been worth it because all the because I am so. I find social media so terrifying and it's it, it's real like my mental health and social media do not go together. So mm. if I tried, I would put all the energy that I currently put into writing or creating into freaking coming up with a post every day. And I do recognise that I am incredibly lucky that I don't have to do that because so many people don't love it but they have to. Yeah. I, I think that that actually is about timing. You know, like I just managed to get my first couple of books published before it became mandatory for an author to have a social media presence. And because that precedent (laughs) had been set, I was able to just keep going, nah, I don't do it, sorry. Right. Do you mean that your first book got published before that was a real thing? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think they still expected me to have a Facebook page and I set up that. Actually, the publisher, that publisher scribe for my first novel helped me set up a Facebook account. It was pretty sweet. Like I went into their studio and the one sat next to me and was like, you know, here's what you do and you put your photo there. (laughs) That's that's kind of cute. Yeah. Bit of a topic change, but I wanted to ask you about how you go with especially being someone who makes music and you've seen what a more communal art form looks like compared to writing. How do you go with the isolation? Have you had periods where it's been really difficult for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you do really, I I think, is that another Zadie Smith quote that a novelist has to have a great capacity for being alone? And I I lost that capacity. I I think the lockdowns in Melbourne 
I, I could not cope with being alone. Like it was, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm using the word alone in a sort of, not the literal sense, like in just, just the alone in a project. Do you know what I mean? Like my yeah. daily life isn't being alone. But yeah, so I went from applying for residencies where I would actually be alone for three weeks in a house somewhere working on a book to feeling like I couldn't even get through one day of sitting at the desk alone. Like it yeah. just felt impossible. So things really, and that was, I'm sure it was the lockdowns. So it just yeah. broke me in that way. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny question to ask right now because the fog has barely lifted. From, yeah, totally. Yeah, and I, I wrote the most pages during the lockdown. Yeah. Well, it was 2021, but it was still, mm. society was still all over the joint. Yeah. And yeah, I had a really hard time of it, but I got a lot done and probably did the best work. Yeah, that's I've, interesting. I've ever done, yeah. which is um, a bit bit troubling. Oh, no, I think <laughs> for sure. I think often very good work comes out of limitations and at the same time being slightly outside of your comfort zone, you know. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the difference between writing kind of on your own or writing music in collaboration with other people, I, I think I was just really, really over. Like I was saying before, I was tired of standing up every night. I was... Tired of touring. I mean, I love my bandmates, but I think I needed to, we'd all spent a lot of time together. So I was really ready to do stuff alone and I really liked it for a long time. It's all about balance, I guess. And I think because, so I was saying before that I had that crazy week where I graduated from RMIT and then had my, my third child and then the phone rang when he was two days old and that was Jason Steger from The Age saying, you know, hey, you've won this prize and we're going to send a photographer. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I think the fact that my family life was very busy and demanding, like having three small children and a partner who was often, my partner's also a musician, he was he toured a lot back then. And so it was, I was just like in free fall really, but quite happy. Like it was okay. very happy domestic chaos. But basically, you know, that in some ways, it's kind of comparable to being on tour with a band. Just the, I would wake up in the morning, which bed am I in? Which kid have I got here with me? <laughs> like, it's right, just yeah. sort of like completely just drifting, you know, like. No, no, like solid routine or no, sense, sense of like the chaos. near future. It's yeah. just like, what's, what's yeah, right here? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So when I did have time to write and I got to go into a room where there was no one else there and put leave my phone, you know, and enter the world of a novel where I had total control and things were just all mine. I loved it. You know, it was a perfect balance of the of the very crazy chaotic family life and, and the solitary world of writing. So it really worked for me for like up until the lockdowns. Okay, know. yeah. And you're about to make more music again, right? So And I actually did a bit last year, Art of Fighting, we did this little nostalgia tour to celebrate the twenty yeah, right. first anniversary of our first album and that was great and it was really fun, but, you know, it was a really short tour. I, yeah. don't, I don't know if I could do a long tour again now, but yeah. enough time had passed for me not playing music, for me to be like, yeah, I love this. Yeah. I actually feel like writing music and writing words, to me, they, they, they are quite a similar process mm. in terms of the part of me that does it. Yeah. And so whether or not there are other people there doesn't really make any difference to that aspect of it. But then where I noticed the real difference is in having a book published versus putting out an album and going on to it because you just get all of that immediate feedback or you 
play live shows, not the screeching sound of feedback. I mean the feedback from the audience in terms of vibe. You know, so you're like, here are people, the music is here, we're all hearing the music together and I can see how it makes them feel. Whereas you publish a book and then you're just like, oh, silence. And this is after years of no feedback to start with. Yeah. Yeah, so how about you? How have you found writing by yourself as opposed to playing music? Well, good at the moment and I think that just serves the argument that COVID was the problem more than the actual isolation per se. Mm. In like 2021 when I was really productive Mm. with working on my book, the fact that it's not such a punish now to be alone and, you know, for two or three days and write, and it's it's really enjoyable again. So I think it was just more of a COVID thing that I realised and you just don't realise when Mm. it's happening. You think you're just fucked in the head. Yeah, yeah. And I still might be, but I, it's it's fun. I'm in the fun, like fucked in the head zone that what instead you, of the bad one, you know? Yeah. yeah. What you said about <laughs> three days alone, I feel like with each of my novels, and actually this didn't happen with Wildflowers, which is another reason why it feels like an aberration, but I would always reach this point quite close to the end of the writing process where I would somehow make sure I got a retreat or a fellowship or something where I went away from my family and I had, you know, preferably a couple of weeks, but sometimes it was only, you know, a week or something. But being able to concentrate and go really deep and stay there, yeah, not st- have to like go, oh, it's three o'clock, okay, got to pick people up from school. Stay in the trance. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. go for long walks and talk to yourself and watch movies sometimes or read, you know, like read it, books that are helping. Well, I just do a lot of walking around talking to myself if I ever get to go somewhere on my own. Yeah. Yeah, and it's... um. The talking out loud really thing is helpful. a bit nutty, obviously, but really, really helpful. Yeah. Not even just like reading back what's on the page to get mm-hmm. the rhythm right or whatever, which is fun, but actually just having no one around to have to act civilized in front of. Yeah. And you can, if you're feeling like you're in a baddie mood or you've had yeah. too much coffee, like you can just. It doesn't matter. Whatever happens, happens. Totally. Yeah, it's really, it's really can... good for the, um, for the ideas. Yeah. So do you apply for many of those kind of things, residencies, fellowships? Well, um, yeah, recently did the, what was it called, Hot Desk yep. Wheeler Centre residency yep. in the winter, which was great. And maybe wouldn't have got that if Mel Fulton a few years ago hadn't encouraged me to enter one of the Varuna House fellowships in the Blue Mountains. Forget what year this would have been, maybe 2018. Mm-hmm. It was a while ago. But we were hanging out one day and she's just, she was just like, you've got all this work here. This just thing is this it. thing has come up. It'll be so easy to enter. And I was like, nah, you know, I've just got to get the thing done. It's all just a distraction. Mm. Just like saying some other bullshit about like, oh, this week's not good. Or, you mm. know, I've, there was always like some excuse. And I think if I'm honest, part of it with that like juvenile sort of anti-industry thing that I just have and probably just need to mm. get over mostly, I just said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't want to do it. And she's like... You should. And I had no reason not to. Got this admission in like five minutes before midnight, like, st- like still drinking wine and proofreading mm-hmm. sort of thing. And just my attitude was so bad by that point. I'm like, this is trash. Like, yeah. But glad I did it because it made it into the top six out of I don't know how many entries, like a lot. Oh, they have, um, they're, they're in they the 300s. Right? Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. And didn't get the fellowship or whatever, but got an email back. And, you know, like there was a, a note from a, one of the, Judges, who was a publisher at Picador at the time, I think mm-hmm. she's since left. And so I was, you know, it was pretty encouraging. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, I was like, oh, cool. Like, it's not just something that's fun for me. 
yeah. other people can see merit in the work or whatever too. Yeah, that's great. Um, and yeah, maybe without doing that, I might not have got, you know, a desk at yeah. the State Library for 10 weeks, which yeah. was really cool. And yeah, I think those things are worth more than like whatever money you get or time or, you know, you get a writing space or whatever. I think the encouragement, the encouragement. The encouragement's good because it's people outside and you never fully trust your friends who like read. I mean, you do, but there's always no, part of you who are like, well, you have to like say something good about it, you know. Yeah. They kind of pat you on the back and say, you know, keep going because yeah. like they love you yeah, yeah. and they want to see you like working on a project that you're into. But it's a different thing to getting... From a stranger, totally. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and someone who's in the industry. It's always worth applying even if you miss out and miss out and miss out. You never know. And like you said, oh, it's really useful when they, they say to you, oh, you were in the top 10 or the top 20 or whatever. Yeah, and I think it's a different world. Like the book world seems to be different to the music world. If I just always felt a bit, if I was in any way involved in like getting a grant for music, you just have this voice like, oh, well, just get a job and work part-time yeah, like yeah. anyone else, you know, like and it's way more fun to just have this like hobby band that's, mm. you know, has no ambition. But it's not quite like that when you're trying to write a novel, like pretty serious undertaking, a lot of hours, mm. makes you feel crazy sometimes. So you really have to just take everything you can get, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I find it really hard to do this, but send the application off and then just try not to think about it again. Like don't get... Because I, I have been through phases where I've applied for funding and then I get into this stupid headspace where I'm like, well, I'm just going to wait until I see the outcome of that application before I keep working on this book. It's like, what? Like I was going to work on it anyway, but now that I've signed up for this funding, it's like somehow it's going to make or break it. That's just, yeah, so it can, right. can mess with your head, yeah. that stuff. So you got to you got to kind of set yourself up to not invest too much in it. I just got reject, a rejection from Verena last week. I was like, oh. All right. <laughs> for a, like a proposal for a book of poems. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, so, so, have you done that a residency up there before? Yeah, I've been yeah. there actually. I think four times. Well, so good. I love it. I've it's heard. Amazing. Yeah, I'd like to. Um, There's nothing else like it in Australia. Cool. Yeah. Should we wrap up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for the chat. Thank you. It was really nice. Crossings was produced by me, Jess Sinoni. It was co-produced and audio engineered by Sam Panifex. Our theme music is by Georgia Ferry, aka Baby G. The artwork for Crossings was designed by Tanika Page. Thank you to Henry Farnan, EWF's marketing and publicity coordinator. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and join us again next week where we'll hear a conversation between writers Misbah Wolf and Rebecca Kelly. Listener.